I want to share something with you this morning that at parts it might be a little controversial, but then what's new um, usually is. Um, but also it's an area that very few people even want to talk about or try and explain what's going on. And so be aware of that as we come. And I want to read from Psalm 22, which we know as the psalm that Jesus quoted on the cross. It begins with, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What people don't often think of is that this is a psalm that David wrote because this is something that actually happened to David. It happened in all its uh, absolute fulfillment to Jesus, but in its not-so-absolute, it happened to David. And I want to look at that in verse 9, in the middle of his telling us all his sufferings that he was going through. In verse 9 he said, Yet thou art he who didst bring me forth from the womb, Thou didst make me trust when upon my mother's breasts, upon thee I was cast from birth. Thou hast been my God from my mother's womb. Um, yeah. So you, when, when were you saved, David? <laughs> um, he, he's speaking that right from the womb when he was a babe suckling on his mother, he was trusting in God, and those words especially, upon thee I was cast from my mother's womb. Um, and, what, and this is what I want to really get at. Um, he is in the middle of trouble, real trouble. In fact, the word trouble is quite useless to describe what he was going through. And he is handling it He's understanding his trouble today by going back to his childhood and saying, you have been with me from the very beginning and therefore you are with me today. It was his understanding of the witness of God. God is with me at all times. He's been with me since I was cast from my mother's womb. And note that verse especially cast from my mother's womb and he says you were there and you have been with me ever since and therefore you are with me now you see life is not a patchwork quilt of events you know what i mean it isn't that we have an experience that has no relationship to anything else we just had the relationship and it's stitched on to life like a piece of uh, patchwork and we go on our way until something else happens that has no relationship to anything, and we just stitch it onto our life. No, David says it's a seamless, from the womb, seamless, not patchwork quilt, but everything fitting into everything. All my yesterdays, and therefore, that being the case, all of my todays, and that being the case, all of my tomorrows, I am held by you. 
This moment in which we now live does not stand in a vacuum. It's been anticipated since the day that you left your mother's womb. Do, do you understand that? All my life, all the life I've lived goes into what I'm saying to you this morning. People say often, how long did it take you to prepare a message? And I say around 70 years. It's, and I mean that because this isn't something I prepared last week. This is something that has been in preparation since my mother's womb. That's what David is saying here. And we've got to get a grip on this. It means God's love comes to us seamlessly from before time and then in birth, right up to this present moment. Did you understand? You didn't suddenly begin to be loved by God when you believed. And I've heard that again. I've heard preachers say, now God can love you because you said the sinner's prayer. It's ridiculous. It says the Trinity love did not begin in our life when we believed. And then in many people's ideas, it goes up and down anyway, as we have islands of faith and fervor and revival, and then we plunge down into despair again, and God stops loving us. And up and down. No, let me say it again, that every moment of existence, and when we were but a thought in the mind of God, God is love toward us. And so we enter this day, <coughs> we enter this hour with all its challenges, knowing that we have never been forsaken and we never will be forsaken. And until we see this as reality, our trust is very wavering. You see, the love of God is not just simply the circus in town this week, and there'll be some tricks and we'll all get excited and we call it revival, and then we go back to normal with no concept of God's love. God's love, can I hammer this because it's foundational. God's love was there before your conception. God loved you as you were a tangible child in your mother's womb. God loved you in birth and he has loved you every second since and that love has been active love. That's what, that's what he's saying. And now as he's in the middle of all the trouble, whatever it was at this stage in his life, he now, how does he handle, how does he handle this present moment? It's a sort of retroactive faith. He's going back and he's saying, I know what I'm going through right now, but you have been with me from the beginning, and therefore all my life leads up to this with the assurance you're not leaving me now. You could say, at least it would be true with some people for sure, it's editing our lives with the Holy Spirit as our editor and in so doing reclaims my life because for many people the lie and liar has twisted our understanding of what our life has been about. And we could say, well, God was with me there and God was with me there what David is saying, let's edit and realize he was with us from the womb and he's never left us. 
whatever has been happening. That's what he's saying here. And so he's replaying his life. It's this replay from childhood all the way through to where he now stands. And he sees all of it through the lens of the covenant God. And that gave the sense to this present moment. And it caused him to realize the hope of this present moment. Whatever I'm going through, he never has left and therefore he never will. In fact, if we wanted to, David was actually, if you read the psalm, he's going back beyond his birth and he realized he's actually one with his history. And therefore, my my most ancient fathers, you loved them. And I'm sitting here today because of what you said to them and did to them. I am part of a whole. I, I often think, I, I can't prove it, but there's good reason to believe I'm a descendant of the Vikings. Um, I know I don't look like it. I'm like a pussycat, but I, I'm, I descend from those ravagers who came to England in, in ancient days. It's in the, the prayer book of the Church of England, if you go back far enough, I think the 14th century edition, where it says, Oh, good Lord, defend us. Defend us from ghosties and gaulies and things that go bump in the night. And the things that go bump in the night were the Viking ships as they came up the shore in the middle of the night to ravage the... And, and Okay, but do you realize, I've often thought of this, that the love of God in my life goes back to that savage who jumped out of a Viking ship and I was left behind. And do you follow me? You've got to realize that that we, we, we're like a, a glorious divine Lego and we fit together not only our immediate life but our ancestors. And, and I know this upsets people because they believe that we made a decision about God and now he loves us. The fact is your decision about God is rooted in his decision about you, which is prior by millennia to any decision that we made about him. God didn't get into our life by our invitation. It isn't that suddenly one day you believed and red lights went on in the heavens and says, now we've got entrance, he's opened the door. See Repentance and faith is not some magnet that draws God to us. He is love. And the scripture says he drew us with cords of love. New Testament says we love because he first loved us. And that first goes back before you showed up in time and space. Before ever you heard the gospel. Before ever you responded. He was bringing you to himself. And he was dealing with every obstacle that stood in the pathway. You say, well, I made a decision for Christ. Thanks be to God. I believe you. I know what you're talking about. But why, why did you make the decision? Because suddenly you woke up and realized the love that was streaming toward you through the face of Jesus Christ. And that was through the Holy Spirit he awakened you and you made a response. 
You made a response to him who'd always been there, always loving you. In Paul, what is it, chapter 3 of Galatians, where Paul says, and people jump over this very quickly, it says that the, the God who separated him from his mother's womb and called him by grace to reveal his son in me. That's a mouthful. Paul, the persecutor, the murderer, breathing out threatenings to the church of Christ. And, and he says, he separated me from my mother's womb. He says, he's been in my life since before the beginning. And he said that revelation on the Damascus road, he said, it isn't that he revealed his son to me. He said he revealed his son in me. And he says, yeah, that leaves me speechless too. But, but he is saying that, that this God who is love and this Christ who has become incarnate was in Paul long before Paul said any sinner's prayer. Okay, lost half the congregation. But, but okay, having said that, it doesn't look like it. That, that's the problem. That's the essence of what I'm talking about. didn't look like it. David said, he separated me from my mother's womb. Uh, Paul said that. that. David said, I was cast upon him from my mother's womb. And it doesn't look like it. In fact, David uses a word that's quite offensive, really. Um, he should have used a nice, holy word to describe those beginning moments as he came from the womb. But he says, he, I was cast upon him. That word is a Las Vegas word. Uh, cast means to throw, um, to toss, actually. But it was used of casting lots, throwing a dice. And so David said, I came out of my mother's womb like a dice being thrown on a Las Vegas table. If you're just thrown out, you talk about chance, luck. I mean, the, the dice is rolled. David said, that was me coming out of my mother's room. I was cast. It, it describes an adventure, a journey that we're suddenly thrust into, actually without permission. I find myself in the middle of it. The word means cast. It, it means to... Um, to throw, but the idea to let go. It means I let go of the dice and they roll on the table. It, it, it's got all the ideas of abandoned in it. I, you let me go. And I was thrown out into life. Out of the snug womb, suddenly bursting into this world. It's got all the elements, you know, once upon a time. That's our life. Oh, and there you are, thrust out of it. Now, now let's get real about this. Out of the womb, cast. And, and every one of us, you, you fell into the family. You just showed up. The dice rolled across the floor and there you were. You showed up. 
and and you've shown up in a, in a family that's got a whole generation of history that you had nothing to do with, nothing whatsoever to do with, but now you are suddenly in it, and it's already in progress, and and, and you're part of this history of this family, and you've only just you haven't met them yet, uh, and you were cast into it. One of the the things I saw once in Africa that I've never forgotten. It was so actually traumatic and yet wonderful. I, I was watching a herd of impala. You know, impala are a little tiny deer, actually. And, and um, here's a whole herd of impala, little deer. And one of them is actually giving birth. And, I, and I'm watching in the herd, and there, there, this doe is giving birth to this, this fawn, and suddenly I realize, come the lionesses, and the lionesses are fanning out as they always do, and they're they're loping, they're in for the hunt, and the impala have picked up either the scent or the whatever, and they begin to run, and this mother who is giving birth begins to run and the baby was born I was watching it the baby was born as she is running and she stops only to nudge the baby and the baby is running learn to walk and run all in split seconds as the lionesses are coming up behind them the lionesses didn't go for them. It's a good story there. The, but I thought of that little fawn who is suddenly, I mean, can you imagine it? You are born as your mother is running from a lioness. And you learn to walk as you are running from danger. But actually, that sounds pretty much like us. <laughs> you, you were born into I mean I, I was born into the sound of an air raid siren um, first memory of life is run to the bomb shelter throw the baby in lay on top and wait that's pretty much the same as that maybe that's why I related to the little chap that was being born running uh, and had to ask his mother what was that you know we're running, but I don't know what's going on. You were born into a family of chaos. I don't care where you come from. I mean, your, your, your mother and father were only a few minutes older than you. And, and they're, they're still in the process of working out the pain that they've experienced in life. They still have not come to know the meaning of existence. And now you show up, and they're going to try and teach you how to live. <laughs> yeah. And so you were birthed into your parents' pain, birthed into their anxiety, fears. And, and, and you, you're sitting there wide-eyed trying to learn how to live by watching your parents, who themselves are making it up as they go along. You're doing catch-up, trying to make sense out of life. And some, especially 
specifically were born into abuse, mental abuse, physical abuse, abuse from religious lies, beating you with Bible verses, crushing you in the name of God. It's no wonder we enter, as we're rolling across the gaming table, we cry. It's our first entrance. We cry. Or you could say that we were born into the tenth act of a play and suddenly find ourselves on stage. And we look around and we say, who's that? Who's that? Why are they here? It's been going on for ten acts. Now you didn't know a thing about it. But now suddenly you're center stage. David, and I think you know this, but let me underscore it. David was an unwanted child. He shows up in... In many ways, the very fact that his father had him out there in the hills looking after the sheep, that wasn't so unusual. Children did that. But the fact when Samuel came, he pretended he didn't have any more children. He hid David because he didn't want David to be shown to the man of God. That's interesting. He's the sort of kid, throw him out there, uh, and everybody says he'll never amount to anything. He's not even worth bringing to show the man of God. You see. And do you remember when he went to his brothers on the morning of the Goliath event? Do you remember what his brothers, they says, what are you doing here? You know, you've left those sheep, you stupid kid. And he, his response, do you remember, the, it's all there. In, in the Bible, it's, David responded and says, what have I done now? Now that's loaded. It means I'm used to this kind. Huh. And then when he's in his late teens and he's married, but his father-in-law is trying to kill him, and his father-in-law is the king, so David doesn't stand much of a chance. He's going to be betrayed by his closest friends. His life is one long story of trouble. Okay, do you, do you relate to that? So to that life, David says, but I was cast upon you. It looked like Las Vegas, but in actual fact, the casting of me into this world was right into your arms. I was cast into you from the very beginning. So it looked like chance. It looked like a lot of bad luck. But really, I was cast upon you. And this isn't just David talk. Um, we've already said, Paul said the same thing. But what about Isaiah 46, verse 3? That's a good one. He says, speaking of us, he said, who have been upheld by me from birth. You who have been carried from the womb. Even to your old age I am he. Even to your gray hairs I will carry you. I have made you. I will bear you. I will deliver you. you. You get it? What about Psalm 71? He says, For you are my hope, O Lord God. You are my trust since youth. By you I have been upheld from birth. You are he who took me out of my mother's womb. 
I know this is upsetting because everybody, you've got to you know, get saved. And then what these chaps are doing, they're looking back over their life and says, you were always there. There was never a moment when I was on my own. And that cast upon you, that word in the Hebrew means together with. It means beside. It means met with. The hug of welcome. Um, and, and many translators have really got this. They've really got it well. One says, when I left the womb, you cradled me. Another one says, you held me on your lap. Another says, you sustained me, you held me up. From my mother's womb, says another, I was in your custody. Now just let that, you know, what, what he's saying, he's saying I left the womb to embark on a terrifying journey and adventure. And at that time I was unaware. All I saw, all I felt was the pain. But you met me the minute my journey began. You were there from my conception. You were there from my birth. You tightly held me. You shared every detail of my life. You guided me all without my knowing it. That's why I say this is retroactive faith. He's going back and saying this is what happened. He's not saying when the little chap came out of the womb, he sat with a notebook and said, this is, he said, I'm looking back and I realize right from the very beginning you've been there. This is the most amazing statement that God is not remote. He's not disinterested. His love can only be described in these vivid terms. See, I've said this before, we said it a lot in Bible school, but do you really understand it? I, I've said that the creation that is God's creation, that he created in limitless wisdom, which means that it is the best possible creation that could ever be, is a contingent creation. You know what contingency is? Well, we're going to do this unless you decide something else and mess it all up. And then we've got a contingency plan, you know. Well, we're going to meet here, but our contingency plan is if all the lights go out, we'll have to meet over there. Contingency means that there's a number of wills that are in, in conflict. And we... It's not just a matter of saying, well, we have free will. It means that our history, our lives, they are the result of choices. Not only choices that we made, that would, be, that would just be you got free will. Contingency means I make a choice, but you make another choice and slam right into me. And, and when we're trying to work that out, somebody else comes along and makes another choice that slams into our choice. And choice, it's made up of choices, imaginations, thoughts. I want this, I want to do that. That's how history is fashioned. That's the world we live in. You say, that's terrible. Yeah, relationship is. Or would you prefer to be a robot? 
there's no relationship whatsoever. You just do, and all the machines are synced, and so it's all. But there's no relationship. If you want relationship, which is the meaning of your creation, then you've got to have contingency. Okay, now what do I do with pain? In the middle of that contingent creation, choices, when I cause my own pain by my decisions, but you cause my pain by your decisions, and then you cause our pain because what are we going to do with that? What about pain? There's many here in the United States. It would surprise you how many there are. Um, some of them are very vocal. Um, they believe that God, now they, they would say he's sovereign, but what comes to their definition of that, I'm going to say he's a cruel, faceless fate. Because they say God intentionally causes our suffering. And, and the, the fellow up there by Chicago has said it very vocally, that every person that died in the Twin Towers were killed by God, that he did it, it was his will. Every person that is swept away in a tornado, it's God's will, he does it. Don't make any excuses. And he says that he does that so that we live in a constant state of fear of him. And America applauds that. So I don't, I'm not surprised that many of you secretly think that's true. Because in the Smithsonian, they've got the greatest preacher in America. And it was Jonathan Edwards, and he believed that. So I don't doubt, you know, it's part of the American way to believe in this faceless, cruel monster call him God. And so when things go wrong, we say, it's God's will, you see. And I dare not ask him to do anything good because I'm not sure about him. I say, if it be your will, I don't know about you, mate. He is dangerous, you know. Okay. And there are others who believe that, but they believe you get points. You're made specially holy now because of all the suffering you've been through. And so, really, we should try and suffer a bit more. It would be helpful. And, and this, is, this is religion. This is what religion says. I've got it in writing. You, you need to suffer. It gives you points for holiness. And if you go back in what the church calls the saints, you'll find lots of them who were racked with pain and disease and poverty and madness, halfway to making them a saint. Lots of people believe that. So that means my loneliness, my betrayals, all the troubles I go through, I have to, it comes from God. It comes from God. And in the day of my trouble, he abandons me because that's what he, he's judging me, he's beating me. It's all for my good, do you understand? It's all for my good. Let me say, that comes out of the lips of ignorant and hostile persons who are broken humans and in the dark of the lie filled with fear they come up with this stuff and people believe it okay put those aside 
If okay, some some other. Well, you see, say some people. If God created us, and He's all powerful and He's all love, then surely He should take away the bad and affirm the good. Makes sense. Destroy the wicked. Get them out of the way. Burn them up. I mean, they're no, no, no good to society. You see? Get, get rid of them. And affirm the good. And that's being offered as the gospel. That's the gospel. That if you come to Jesus, everything's going to be wonderful. See? If you come to Jesus, all the bad things in life will just go away. Then, of course... You find the whole jolly congregation is in pain, but no one wants to talk about it. And they're, they're, they're in pain in the parking lot. And when they come in through the door and the deacon greets them, how are you? So wonderful, praise God. Because no one wants to talk about that. Because we all want to pretend everything's wonderful. Because we don't have an answer to this. We are suspicious of God. If God is God, what's this going on for? If God is God, why does he let you live? You're nothing but a pain. The trouble is, you see, someone else is saying that about you. You'd end up, we're all dead. It's, do you understand this relationship thing? You just can't go through killing people. And of course, so many believers have lost their faith because the pain is still there. And they were promised it would go away. It's obviously, if you look at all the people in pain, then very obviously to say that he just will make it go away because he's a good God, that's not the wisdom he works by. And apparently that's not what he calls good. You're frowning at me, but it's okay. Well, now there's others. You've got to bring them into the picture too. There's others. And there's a lot of them in our world today. They say we are in charge. See, we're in charge. All this talk about God being in charge. No, we're in charge. And, and, and we have the possibility of making everything good if you have enough faith. And if you've got enough faith, you can force God's hands, you see. Because faith is control. You control God by your, you control events, you control people by your faith. And of course then that, that fulfills the lie of Garden of Eden, you shall be as gods. So if there is pain and sorrow, then it just means we didn't have enough faith. Well, of course there's sin in the camp. And of course... Again, you go into those churches that believe that and you have a congregation full of people that are trying to believe enough and trying to repent enough and get nowhere. And that leaves them with a deeper hurt of shame that they're not enough to handle it. There's a funeral. It was there. And the pastor got up at, at the funeral and he said, this should never have happened. This person shouldn't be dead. It's because you people didn't have enough faith and there's sin in this room. And therefore, confess your sin. Admit your faithlessness. Well, I guess that's the best you can do if that's what you believe. What is the gospel? What does the gospel do with pain? Very different picture. The incarnation. 
the big theological word. But incarnation means that God, God the Son, sent by the Father, assumed to perfection our humanity so that we have the person here who is 100% God and 100% man. He's entered 100% into our contingent world. It's not God waving a stick like Gandalf and saying, everything's got to change on Gazoom, it all changes. No. He entered our contingent world. And he was only two years old when they're refugees running into Egypt from a mad king who wants to kill them. You would have thought that out of that little baby's hands should have come lightning that would have destroyed Herod. Of course he's God. No, he joined us in our contingency. God assumes, give me bigger words, he, he stepped into our darkness and felt it as we feel it. He stepped into the mesh of lies and as man, he deals with evil from the inside. He's not the magic trickster outside cursing it and throwing words at it, but he comes inside, joins us. He defanged evil, destroying death and destroying the darkness from the inside. Incarnation. It's a word that's too big for our tongue. And when he came he intentionally suffered. The sufferings of Jesus were not those of a victim. The sufferings of Jesus were those that he intended. Intentional suffering. Why? Because he is going to get inside every pain you've ever had, every anguish, every tear, every torment, he's not going to address it from the outside. He is going to come inside it and feel it and know it and address it from the inside. And that's why his sufferings were intentional. He chose. We've talked about it before. When they began in the Garden of Gethsemane, when thousands of soldiers came to arrest him, and all he said was, I am. And they all fell backwards and their swords went flying and their torches went flying. And they laid there like roaches on their back, including Judas. And Jesus said, um, who are you looking for? And they scrambled to their feet. Can you imagine to arrest the man that only spoke two words and knocked out an entire army? If that doesn't tell me that he's doing this intentionally. He's saying, I've shown you, you can't touch me. Now I'm giving you permission. I'm lifting all restraints. I want you to come in and tell me what you think about me. 
and do to me everything that your heart wants to do. And he assisted them in his arrest. He healed one of the servants who had come. And there follows, as I say, we've talked about it so much, that whenever they cursed him, whenever they did the suffering upon him, his only response was silence. Why? Because in silence he is accepting it and getting inside it. Now that's the whole point. He assumed to himself every torment that we've ever had or ever will have. He got inside the horrors of our lives, the trauma of human existence. And Isaiah 53 mentions it. It's, you know, when you talk to people, they say, um, Jesus died for our sins. Well, it's absolutely true. But is that it? You see, it says in Isaiah 53, he bore our grief. He carried our sorrow. So it's more than sin. There's sin, but then there's grief, and then there's sorrow. Those two words, put them together, are the most potent words may be in the Hebrew language to describe pain. Grief and sorrow are by far too weak translation. Interestingly, it can also be the pain, suffering of physical pain. So when Jesus healed the sick, it said this was fulfilled. That he, and they translated it then with that specific, that he bore our sickness, he carried our disease. That's, that's a true translation. But the sickness and disease and the pain goes deeper in these words. They describe the entire spectrum of sickness and brokenness. Grief and sorrow include spirit. They include my mental state. They include my emotions as well as the physical. It means extreme pain. It means pain to the point of unbearable anguish. And it means that, as I say again, spirit, but also mentally, emotionally, and physically. It describes pain that's caused by another out of their hatred. It also describes pain that's caused by being in the crossfire, being in the wrong place at the wrong time. He bore our grief and carried our sorrow. He submitted. That's the only word I can get. He asked for it. He submitted to the wickedness of the men. And he did so at every level. Spirit, mentally, emotionally, physically. But in so doing, he forged a relationship between himself and suffering humans. So he covered it all, everything that's ever happened in our life. He took it. He suffered the worst abuse that a human can inflict upon a human. If you've seen that movie, The Passion, that is one of the best I've ever seen. But it's hopelessly too weak. Jesus suffered a hundred times more than that movie dare even pretend to, to show. I wanted to, I could tell you how, how that is true. 
And that includes every abuse, including sexual abuse. We, we don't realize it because of all the religious art. But crucifixion was a form of sexual abuse. They stripped a person naked. And it was done by persons who were handpicked for their cruelty and their perversion, sadism. That's how they got the job, that they could do this and enjoy it. Stripping the person naked and then hanging them up in front of a gawking crowd to be laughed at. That's sexual abuse. Especially when you realize that the person they were doing it was the purest mind and most undefiled humanity. And sexual abuse was horrific. Where was God when I was abused, betrayed, raped? And especially, let me say, abused, and I'll say it, raped by religious authority figures. And many of you beaten by wicked hands who quoted Bible texts at you while they did it. Have you ever thought of this? Jesus was crucified. He was beaten. And, as I say, all the overtones of sexual abuse by religious authority. Have you ever thought about that? Especially some listening right now who have been abused by pastors and priests. Jesus was. Every nail that went through his hand was done in the name of the God of Israel. Caiaphas had his stamp upon it all. He'd employed the Romans to do the dirty job. It was the temple that crucified Jesus along with the Romans. Think about that. Every lash of the whip was done in the name of God. And they quoted Bible verses to back it up. This isn't something of ancient history. God. And when I say God, I mean the creator of all that is. Entered into our human experience at its worst. And he did so for us and with us. So he doesn't merely weep for us. But he is with us at the bottom of our pain. Okay, let me put it like this. If Jesus is only a man, if Jesus is only a man, then he would have drowned in our sorrow with us. Do you, do you understand? If he's only a man to go through this, to say, I'm sympathetic with you, I'll go through it with you, then he'll be as dead as we are as at the end of it. This, this is the gospel that he is man and therefore he has a body that can suffer our pain. But he's God. And so as he suffers to the nth degree in our humanity, he is at the same time God who takes the poison out of our suffering. He doesn't give you amnesia. 
When it comes to suffering, he assures you he's taken the poison out. See, there's a scar in my body. And I, I could look at the scar and I remember how I got it. And I remember it festered. But that was a long time ago and all the poisons drained out of it. And all I'm left with is a memory that's harmless. It happened. That's what Jesus did. He got inside our suffering and he took the poison. He took the death out of death. And he gave to us instead healing of our total person. He gave to us wholeness. He gave to us his own God love, God strength and God peace in exchange. That's the gospel. It isn't that God just came and suffered and says, look what I did for you. He'd be drowned with us. He is God who in his humanity did suffer your suffering. But he's God who gives you the grace and the peace and the healing as he takes the poison of your And he did that when we were totally oblivious. Do you remember when the, the disciple says, we want to come with you, and they said, where, where I'm going, you cannot come. He has to do this alone. We were oblivious of his love when he did it. And right up to this present moment, there is a time when hurt is so great that we still are blinded and forget God in all of this. And that's okay. He understands that. He does, it doesn't, God doesn't merely know about our suffering. He doesn't merely feel sorry for us. He became human and now experiences every pain at its deepest level. Every pain. I say again. Mental pain, emotional pain. It's all there at the cross. Work it out, what they said to him, the beatings they gave him. And he looked to his dearest friend, Peter, who is now cursing and saying, I never knew the man in those words. And the Lord turned and looked upon Peter. I can feel the anguish of that. When his best friend Judas, and understand that, he's got a bad name, so... Judas isn't often called the best friend, but he held the treasurer's bag. He was in charge of the money. You don't give that to your worst enemy. It was Peter, James, John, and Judas, number four. And that man betrays him. And the word used in the upper room, Jesus is in anguish and agony when he says, one of you will betray me. And the word used of that is the same word used for divorce. It was the wrenching inside. And he deliberately entered into, he could have been arrested without Judas. But Jesus needed Judas so he could feel what you feel like when your best friend stabbed you in the back. In Isaiah 63 verse 9, it says, in all their distress, he was distressed. In his love and his mercy, he redeemed them and lifted them and carried them. 
And that word there, distress, it's another big word in Hebrew. It means the affliction. It means all forms of depression, anxiety. It's used um, just in literature of, of having a pebble in your shoe. And you, you can't walk because this thing is forever digging into your foot. And they use this word for it. It means a narrow canyon that gets narrower with every step so that now you can't turn around. Your shoulders are touching either side. You're hemmed in. It means every form of claustrophobia. It means to be tied up and unable to move. He was distressed in all their distress. He didn't just come and deliver us because he's God. He got inside where we were and broke out from inside us. And this psalm, that we, we didn't read it, but I um, hope you will go and read it, but you're many familiar with it, Psalm 22. And in Psalm 22, think about this, they're David's words. Think about it. He said, David said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? David said that. He said, I'm surrounded by the strong bulls of Bashan. They're trying to tear me like wild dogs. David said that. But then it was such a prophecy that Jesus said it. And he didn't edit it. Exactly what had happened to David, Jesus could use those same words. They're his. God and man using the same words to describe the same terrors and horror of what life can do to you. Think about that. Hebrews 4 says that we have a high priest. Right now at this moment, Jesus, still in his humanity, still one of us, knows what we're feeling, knows what we're going through. In Christ, God actually participates in, God actually feels and experiences our entire life. Your journey has been his. He has been the invisible travel companion inside you, feeling your pain as his, your abuse, your rejection, your decisions that you now wish to God you'd never made. The guilt, the condemnation, the shame, and all the religious lies that beat you up from birth until this moment. He's never left you. He's not that remote, indifferent spectator. He's actually in us, active in us, involved in all our life. And involved, he's kind, he's gentle, he's patient, he's forgiving. This isn't a God who watches us disinterestedly from a remote heaven, viewing our life as irrelevant facts. But of course, we didn't see. We're too bound up in the pain. And I say, that didn't stop him loving you. It's okay. In that darkness, we're blind and we're deaf. And actually, we fought against the grace. We fled away from love. We descended into the hopeless loneliness. We saw ourselves as victims. And then we hide. 
all our pain and abuse. Don't think you're the only one. It's the way we are. Because along with abuse of all descriptions comes the shame that it was my fault. And therefore I'm guilty at some deep level that it happened to me. And if you've got parents from back in the 1950s, they probably told you it was your fault if you ever shared it with them. But we, we don't share. It's the secret locked away inside of us of what this person did to us, the place of shame, believing that we're separated from God and society because of this. In fact, how many blame a faceless, cruel God for the very pain that keeps us from him? But the gospel is, he's taken it, he's made it his own. The only forgiveness he gives, the cleansing he gives, is to cleanse you from the filthy hands that put the abuse upon you. Not because you're guilty, but it says in the scripture that, that when you touch a dead thing, then you're, you're unclean. Well, a dead monster touched you, and he cleanses you from them. That makes sense. The fact is, you will discover this God in the middle of all your secrets, because that's where he is, loving you. All the scars are the paving on the broken road that leads to him. You see, the abuser has lost. The lie has been exposed. They couldn't separate you from God's love. Now we're wide awake. And we're in a position like David to edit our life and see our path to the eyes of his love that love never did forsake us. He was actually actively sharing it with us. Okay, put it this way. Metanoia. You know, the correct word for the repentant word. What what if repentance if you want to use that word is not hating and disowning your past. Repentance is is not ashamed of what I did. Metanoia, that radical change of mind the Holy Spirit gives, is realizing that he was there. He was there inside our greatest darkness, inside our insanity. Now, metanoia is I see through his eyes. And I can thank God that he was there. And he never left me there. He brought me out. We Metanoia is now seeing it through his eyes. It's revisiting, redefining the past seeing his love and grace all the way through. And of course, when that has happened, you become, you become the love and the grace of God to others who are in the same great sadness that you've been in. He joined us. He joins us in the darkness. He brings us out. And now we become his hands to bring others out. 
And so in now in the day now in the day of pain like David, he looks back and says, Well, if if you were with me all the way through, you're with me now. I I, I look back and I see through his eyes the grace that never left me. I see a seamless past. And I see the scars of the past are now memorials to his victories. For, as David says in another psalm, only, surely, only goodness and loving kindness follow me all the days of my life. And so we see our latest pain, our latest problem in the light of a lifetime of love and grace that never left us. And as Andrew read at the beginning, bless the Lord, O my soul, forget not. That's another message all by itself. But the, the Hebrew word for remember and forget are totally different to our English words. And the word forget in Hebrew means to leave something in the past and declare that it's irrelevant to the present. It's not amnesia. It's not our Western idea, shucks, I forgot. It means, no, I am well aware of it, but I leave it back there as irrelevant to me now. Forget not. Do not forget all his benefits. Don't leave the benefits of God in the past as if they're irrelevant to now. Don't leave them there as if they've got nothing to do with now. Every part of your life is happening right now is relevant forget not forget not walk into this present moment wherever you are with hope and expectancy because you know he's there where are you what, what, what's up what would you be to me now what is it you're giving to me as you're taking the poison out of this moment what are you doing for he who began a good work in you will complete it in the day of Jesus Christ. Amen. And amen. Father, thank you. Thank you. It is all true. Beyond our ability to say it, we thank you, Holy Spirit, that you connect us with the truth, that it is so. Let us go from our meeting together this day in the full joy unspeakable and full of glory that you have never left us and you never will. We commit ourselves into your hands. Amen.